Welcome to my passion project, the Bold Flavors Podcast. I'm Timo, founder and CEO of Gusto. At Gusto, our vision is to be the most loved way to eat dinner and we're currently delivering over 1 million meals every single week in the UK. We are a data company that loves food and we are customer and culture obsessed. From every episode, you can expect in-depth conversations on leadership, what makes a person tick and scaling businesses. Since starting Gusto in 2012, I've spoken with so many amazing, inspirational and talented people who have shaped my thinking. This podcast is about sharing some of these experiences with you. Today, my guest is Anthony, the former CEO of Grace, the UK's biggest snack company. He spent six years at Innocent and 11 years at Grace, scaling two of the most iconic food brands in the UK. This gives him a unique vantage point into the journey from startup to scale up and what it means for people, culture and operating model. At Grace, Anthony first focused on the UK and had huge success. Then Grace expanded into the US, rapidly moving to half of its revenues coming from the US market. However, when Royal Mail changed their pricing structure, making the model uneconomic, he had to reinvent Grace entirely, successfully pivoting into retail. In this episode, Anthony will share what he has learned from hitting the growth ceiling, how it feels to be private equity owned, and how culture and operating model can shift over time. Anthony, where did you grow up and how was it like? Well, I was actually originally born in Houston, Texas, um, though not many people can tell that by the accent. Um, I lived in the Netherlands. I lived in Belgium. Um, and then I moved back to the UK and lived in Chester in the northwest of England. How did this influence your, your life, you know, growing up in different parts of the world? Well, I, I really enjoyed it, though it had some downsides. You often had to move, leave your friends behind, you know, make new friends, start new things. But I look back at this as a very positive experience. And were your parents into um, politics or diplomacy? It was um, Shell and Oil. So my father was a research scientist. Very interesting. And so how, how was it like growing up? What influenced you until today? I think what's interesting is I always thought I wanted to be an entrepreneur, but I've never quite been brave enough. And that's kind of really defined my, my whole career. I, I did, had a very academic, you know, I did a lot of very academic study. You know, I went to Oxford, um, I went to Princeton, I, you know, I did research science myself. But I had this itch that I wanted to be an entrepreneur, but I didn't know how to do it. And maybe if I look at myself in the mirror, was I ever brave enough? Um, but I was very lucky, and I ended up getting a job at Innocent Drinks when it was very, very small. Um, I, I literally um, sent them an email and then went down and knocked on the door of Fruit Towers in Shepherd's Bush and said, look, told them the same story. I think I want to be an entrepreneur. Can I come and learn with you guys? Um, and they later admitted they hired me purely because they needed lots of maths, <laughs> <laughs> And that was the kind of the long and the short of it in their mind. They were like, surely we can put this person to good use. And, and what did you study? Um, I studied chemistry. How big was the company when you joined? I think there was um, sort of 20 employees. Wow. Okay. And how big was it when you left six years later? I mean, hun hundreds and hundreds, you know, sort of uh, 130 million. 
um, sterling turnover just after the Coca-Cola buyout. And what did you learn on the journey? I mean, it's one of the most iconic consumer brands in the UK. What, what did you learn? I mean, I, I learned so much and I, I don't think I'd have got as far if I hadn't had that learning experience at Innocent. And I was lucky to find such a wonderful company, but also lucky that this was a wonderful way to kind of set me on my dream, which is around food and brands and, you know, changing industries. That's what really excites me. But, you know, Innocent was a brand years ahead of its time in terms of standing for something. Um, it was a, a brand and a company years ahead of the time, its time in sort of how it was organized as a founder-led business. Um, and, you know, I, th I think it was a really good quality company. So I learned a lot about what, how to succeed in a startup, how to succeed in a fast-growing scale-up, you know, maybe how to react when a fast-growing scale-up starts to go a little bit wrong or has a, has a major wobble. So talk me through what has changed between startup and scale-up. Well, I think everything changes, you know, is the problem. And, you know, anyone running a business needs to be, be very alive to this. You know, in the startup, there's a few people, but they're very passionate. The values are self-evident, but there isn't enough expertise. There isn't enough time, but you communicate quickly and you can often kind of get a lot of things done. As you grow into a scale-up, it becomes a lot more to do with solving organizational problems and how do you set up the organization to succeed rather than just solving business problems. And that is a completely different skill. And very few people go all the way from startup to scale up. You've done both stages. Which one do you enjoy more personally? I think they both have their strengths and weaknesses. There's something wonderful about moving quickly, solving problems, that wonderful family feel you have in the startup team where everyone knows each other and gets on really well and is sort of in it together. Then again, you know, luckily both at Innocent at Grays, when you get big, you get to hire kind of real industry experts and you can choose what you want your company to really specialize in. How are you going to win over your competition? And that has a certain appeal. Though I'm not going to sugarcoat it. I think growing organizations is exhausting. Um, I think many people, including myself, find some of the organizational issues the toughest they come across in terms of, you know, energy or even sleepless nights. Yeah, absolutely. And just staying a bit longer on Innocent, the, describe the culture of Innocent, please. I mean, it was very informal long before, um, you know, maybe the tech companies came along and kind of really became synonymous with that style of business. It was very meritocratic. You know, people there really believed in what we were doing. You know, I would stay up all late, if, all night, if asked to, you know, for the sake of the business. I felt really passionate about it. I felt that we were inventing something new, which was good for the food industry, which at the time was around championing natural food, was about championing sustainability, you know, about really kind of caring about your brand and its impact. Yeah, I mean, it was such a powerful brand. I remember I learned a ton from just, you know, reading the, the Innocent book and looking at the packaging and the quirky style. Um, it's a really, really fantastic example. And talk to me about some of the failures uh, Innocent and maybe you personally had on the way and how you overcame them or what you learned from them. Well, a consistent problem when you're a fast-growing scale-up is what happens if the growth stops? Innocent hit a major wobble and 
to kind of sketch it out, it was around the time of the credit crunch. Um, it also had a very large competitor, PepsiCo, which decided to enter the market. It also was a time of foreign exchange volatility, which was incredibly hard to manage as a, as a smaller business. And it can be shocking how one minute you're growing very quickly and you're struggling to invest and organize behind that growth and keep it going. And then the next day it's gone and you realize maybe you are too complex or you are too costly or the strategy which seems to have worked for you for very many years is suddenly not relevant anymore. And how do you recognize that and respond to that? Fascinating. And what did it mean for you on a personal level? I, th I think the big one is you've become very used to succeeding or you have a deep belief in your brand or you have a deep belief in your product and maybe you don't confront it straight away is my number one takeoff from you know the innocent innocent journey and I've worked really hard at Grays when I think there's an issue can I draw people's attention to it are people taking it seriously enough are people reacting aggressively enough to it it's amazing how some people have filters or do not want to see these things so at what stage did you decide to leave innocent and why so i, I left around a year after the coca-cola buyout you know going back to my original statement i was like right i've learned so much wonderful stuff at this company Now I'm going to be the entrepreneur. And I, I was driving my wife crazy at home, <laughs> cooking up lots of products, some of which I still think of that would, would be very good products today, you know, including weird ways of steaming sushi in cardboard boxes and, you know, all sorts of things um, in, in, in our kitchen. And was, was thoroughly enjoying that when, when one day I came across... Um, a beta Grays box. And this was the founders of Grays testing out this idea of shipping fresh fruit direct to offices in sort of letterbox sized boxes. And I was completely blown away by this because to me, technology was happening in all these other industries, but wasn't happening in the food industry. And here was something which seemed to manifest so many trends around convenience and digital experience and personalization. I was really bowled over by it and what it could be. And I actually was so compelled that I worked out where their office was and, and drove down and, and knocked on the door and asked for a job. Wow. And how big was the company then? It was just the founders. So they, were, they, were, they had just rented a warehouse in Feltham and they were just doing the beta testing. So they, they hadn't really employed anyone. And can you tell the story of how it looked when they sent fresh fruit in the mail? Obviously, they pivoted to nuts later on. What it was was a chaos of people with Sabatier knives. <laughs> and they were trying to buy fruit, which was just at the perfect freshness. So you wanted it kind of almost slightly uh, unripe. And all these people would slice, be slicing the fruit, packing it into these trays and these boxes, putting it into this sort of blast fridge to kind of try and chill it down and then putting it on a Royal Mail truck. Wow. And um, praying that it kind of made it, made it through the mail. So you joined the company. How did you then pivot to nuts, which are obviously much easier to ship? It was one of these fortuitous things. So the Royal Mail went on strike 
And the problem with the Royal Mail going on strike was uh, if you post a box, it may take significantly longer to reach the end consumer. Um, so we moved at speed to a product that was, as you said, completely ambient, completely stable, and you know, explained to our consumers why we were doing this and kind of asked for their understanding, which is you know, the beauty of the direct consumer model, a certain intimacy, a certain kind of ability to ask these things from your consumers. Um, and the surprising thing is they loved it, but also we had all the KPIs and metrics. Um, and in many ways, it seemed to be at least as good and a lot less of an issue than the fresh fruit. Wow, fascinating. Okay. And then relatively shortly after you became the CEO, how did this happen? So Gray's was this extraordinary company born out of many of the technical individuals from Love Film. Um, so these were the individuals who designed a lot of the Love Film back end, back when Love Film was DVDs through the mail, if you remember that. So the little, little Absolutely. envelopes. Yeah, we just hired you know, Love Film's um, CFO, so I'm very familiar with them. Um, but, you know, even down to, if you, if you think the value proposition of Grey's is, is sort of slightly strange, it is related to Love Film and this idea that you didn't choose exactly what you wanted. You know, Love Film picked from a catalogue for you back in those days when it only had a, a limited number of um, DVDs. So they were, they were all these incredible technical experts, and I, I'd never come across them before, and I found them amazing. But I'd come, one, from the food industry, and they hadn't hired anyone from the food industry, so brand and product, you know, a consumer focus. These were, these were quite new things to these individuals. But also, I can't stress it enough, just the amount of things I had learned on the Innocent Journey about what we should be focusing on. And, you know, some of these things we focused on were the difference between uh, Gray's being a very loss-making business when I joined to becoming a very profitable business in quite a short space of time. Lots of people went, you know, wow, you know, you know, maybe we should give this guy a go at running it, even though it was very much their business. Incredible. And, and just talk through why do you think that happens? So massive, massive growth, really fast profitability, significant profitability. What was the secret sauce at the beginning? Yeah, I think there was probably two or three things. Um, the first was we brought manufacturing in-house um, and we had experimented with using co-packers. But the problem was we were receiving all this data, which was telling, telling us what our consumers liked and didn't like. And we wanted to respond to it. And you know, the co-packer was like, you know, come back in two years if you want to make a tweak to the range. We're, we're done now. So I think as well as bringing manufacturing in-house and hence being able to, you know, really kind of drive quality, you know, maybe have advantages on understanding margin structure. The big one was really was we could just innovate really quickly. If we wanted to change the product, we'd change the product. So it led to this kind of really playful innovation and the product got better and better. I think the other thing we cracked was the whole world of data-driven marketing. And this was everything from kind of working out how you create this viral effect in offices, um, you know, through to the performance marketing. You know, how do you get people to try this product? You know, what happens to them after they've tried the product? What percentage of, of signups roughly were, were coming from referrals? Because I remember every single person I knew gave me referral codes. It clearly worked wonderfully. So correct. I mean, in the very early days, it would have been, you know, kind of north of 75%. Wow. In, in the very early days, paid marketing was just not working. As the product improved, you know, as the margin improved and we could kind of get the pricing right, 
um, as we sort of built data systems, which were increasingly better, which was a very different kettle of fish 10 years ago, we were able to also start to do the paid marketing and get it to work as, you know, as, as well as the office at Virality, which kind of really got us out of the blocks. I think that's the dream of everyone starting a subscription business. Um, absolutely incredible to hear. And at some point, you then moved into more mature marketing channels. You focused a lot more on brand building. Just talk me through a little bit more about the, the mix in, in marketing channels over time. Yeah, I, I think broadly, we were pretty aggressive around the classic performance marketing metrics, CAC, LTV, how much can you break them down? And, you know, there's a lot of debates, isn't there, in terms of how much brand should you spend on brand, how much brand do you want to get into your direct response? And I think what we came to the conclusion of was when people received that box, it was such a transformational moment. When people had come on board, they felt so differently about Greys that we wanted the branding to be very consistent on the direct response. We wanted people to know who was speaking But the important thing was to really win them round once they were a customer. Um, and you, know, this, you can see this in the brand scores to this day. People who've received the box you know, have this incredibly positive view of Grays, even if they've only received one box. But you know, that performance marketing also had a shadow side in terms of people who hadn't got a box or didn't know who, some, who, who had received it maybe didn't understand as much about the brand or maybe had negative connotations of it. Mm. And how much did you focus on NPS and product experience? So we used NPS. We cut churn, you know, a gazillion different ways. The really big one was around the product and continuing to iterate and provide a, a changing food experience. Um, so that was the thing which we really latched onto in terms of driving that and really trying to entertain people with how it changed. Can you share how much um, the NPS improved and what was it like? I think what I can definitely share is that Graze's churn in the early days was maybe 25% a week. Wow. Um, which is obviously unsustainable and you'd never invest in. You know, as time went on, it's single digit per month. So, you know, some wow. of that is the mix of acquisition. Um, but a lot of it is just coming up with a product that is relevant and valuable to consumers. You know, I think the, the bottom line is the product Gray started with was not very valuable to consumers. It was, it was a quirky piece of entertainment. Yeah, so you pivoted into a product that actually worked and consumers really loved it. And talk me through the unit economics, how they have changed over time. And I think at some point you hit some kind of wall. And what happened then? Yeah, of course. So the business, you know, these, the combination of the two things, sort of really getting the product right, powered by this sort of flexible innovation we were able to do with our own supply chain. You know, you were even, even able to kind of upload images directly to the line and print them in line. You know, we really kind of got behind that when we were a pure play D2C business. Uh, and we, we grew and we became very profitable. And we went through a private equity buyout with the, with the Carlyle Group, so a, a leveraged buyout. We then expanded to the US. Um, and I, I don't know if you mind, Timo, if I, if I do the US first and then I'll talk about kind of um, 
kind of what we found in terms of unit economics and uh, absolutely the we had. So we expanded to the US and you know, Grays had just gone through a leveraged buyout. It had debtors to pay. It didn't have a huge amount of money. And at Innocent, we'd done many international launches at CPG business and and really they were very difficult. You you don't know what you don't know. And you know, th- this was a business that was absolutely obsessed with data, you know, at this stage. And we were like, well, why don't we invent kind of the ultimate minimum viable product towel for the US? Um, so we used international airmail and we launched in the United States. We measured around 100 KPIs. And we got confident that if we went to the US, we, you know, we could make it work. And we, you know, convinced our shareholders that, you know, despite not being super capitalized, you know, which is often a requirement for, for US expansion, we, we could get it to work. So we, we went to the US and because we'd kind of flushed out so much about the product proposition, so much about customer acquisition, we absolutely exploded out of the gates. And um, I think coming into the first year from opening the US distribution center to sort of a $30 million um, run rate. Wow. Wow. Um, you know, serving the whole country and, you know, kind of, you know, getting the economic, postage economics to work, which was one of the major challenges of, 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 of going to the US. So this was all going, you know, incredibly well at this stage. Back to the earlier statement, you know, we really felt that we'd found a winning formula and we quickly found out that that winning formula was just about the music, was just about to run out. And there were two reasons for this. Um, the first was postage prices. Um, so the Royal Mail in the UK privatised um, and had a large amount of discretion on what to do with Grays' pricing. Um, and they decided to put it up quite, quite significantly. I, I believe it went up over 100%. You know, and that led to our EBITDA halving. Um, but also anyone who runs a DTC business will have worked out that your lifetime value also falls significantly if your gross profit on future sales falls. So, um, you know, the rational thing was to start dialing back on customer acquisition quite dramatically. You know, over in the US, I, I just presented to the guy who ran the US, a framed picture with a dollar in it. And <laughs> the dollar was signifying how we just had our first break-even month in the US and we literally made $1, <laughs> I think, in the account. So I, I presented it to him and made some speech about how glad I was that we weren't the sort of British business that went to the US and lost a fortune. <laughs> and the, the United States Postal Service came to us and um, apologetically said that they now had to be a profitable business and they were going to raise our prices. And I think it, it was about 25% a year, but over three years. They said, look, this is the plan for the next three years. Uh, and again, like the Royal Mail in the UK, that removed a lot of the kind of pricing or cost advantage that the model had and made it incredibly difficult to ever see the US as a large profitable business. You know, it's a significant impact. So there was this kind of real year when everything went from so positive you know it's all about data it's all about being a pure play it's also about this innovative to having to come up with a new way forward and the ownership had recently changed um, as you said to a private equity owner i mean this must have been an incredibly difficult situation for you personally as the ceo of the company talk us through what happened in the boardroom yeah, I, I think people were worried. I saw it as a 
good thing that people were worried because <laughs> there was something significant to worry about. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Back to my innocent thing, innocent comment. I think the worry is when people are worried or are unengaged. I mean, one of the big positives for me on the private equity ownership is they're very engaged. And engagement can be a good or a bad thing, but when you've got a problem and you've got a majority owner, the good news is it's it's up to you around the table to work out a solution. And I think a large part of Gray's going on to thrive was because you could come up with that unity of vision. You could discuss the uncertainties and the issues and feel that everyone really understood them. Makes sense, yeah. And what happened then? How did you rebuild? So we, we, we tried lots of things. And <laughs> back to my comment on organization, you know, it's, it's hard to pivot as a startup, but often necessary. You know, you often have to try a few different gloves on until you find the one that fits, you know, the magic formula, which is going to, you know, carry you on that, on that first wave. Trying to do it in an organization, which I think probably had about 600 employees, at this stage and, you know, multiple factories and multiple fulfillment centers and great big tech stack, it, you know, it was much more difficult. Um, and we, we tried to say, solve it in, in lots of different ways. You know, we tried to solve it in average order value would have been the simplest way to solve it, you know, to just get away from all these low cost deliveries and the United States postal service and the raw mail letters, but we could just not convince the UK or the US or even the US consumer to buy in bulk less frequently. Uh, and I still wonder if, if somebody else could have cracked it, but we could not crack it. Um, and one of the ideas in the funnel was, of course, to take the product and sell it in stores. And there, there were some interesting push and pull factors. Some of the pull factors were we were the most recognized brand in the UK for healthy snacking. What, what brand product. awareness did you have back then? I think it was probably like 80% if you wow. showed somebody wow. the box, which was sort of a, a major kind of brand asset. But also, we, we had twice the unprompted awareness of the market leader at that time. So times two, the next player. So we, we had really you know, built that awareness. And certainly amongst the people who received the boxes, it was very, very positive equity and very kind of unusual, unusually strong feelings towards the brand. Uh, maybe achieved in a, in a very different way to sort of what we've done as, as, as innocent. And just just to paint a picture a bit more, what proportion of revenues came from the US when you decided to go into retail? Yeah, I, I think it was it was approaching 50-50. Wow. So the US had been this spectacular success from a top line perspective and was trending and just hitting break even, which was a, you know, a huge relief because the, you know, the cash was being made in the UK and spent in the US. This was all kind of self-funded, you know, with different amounts going off to, you know, kind of settle various debtors and you had to comply with various banking covenants. And how did retail then develop? It was very tricky because I think there was literally only one other person in this, in this entire business who'd ever worked in retail. So, you know, kind of how do you try something new which the business as a whole doesn't really understand about. And I, I think we got it right. And we hired a lady called Emma Heal, who was super entrepreneurial and didn't care that <laughs> she was all on her own. She was going to make it happen, uh, sell to the retailers, you know, knock the heads together to get, you know, the supply chain to work and, you know, go and hire the team, 
Chloe and she had to interview them all at seven in the morning for breakfast. So we kind of found that person who could really pioneer the new area. And, you know, the good news for Greys is when you put the product on the shelf, it's sold immediately. And kind of what, what transpires is lots of people really enjoyed the product and they were very aware of the brand and had a very positive view of it but they just didn't want to buy online online isn't convenient for everybody especially for something which is like a snack it's not central to their lives do they is it important enough that they're happy to maintain an account and make changes and remember to cancel it when they're on holiday lots of people do want to buy it on the boots meal deal or when they've missed lunch and they want something healthy to kind of tide them over and give them energy so when you left recently, what proportion of revenues roughly came from retail versus online, just to understand how it's shifted? Of course, yeah. So the vast majority now comes from retail, and that is where the significant growth is going to come from. And you know, I, I think it's easy to visualize why this is. Um, while online is growing incredibly quickly, certainly in food and especially snacks, the vast majority of the market is still very traditional. It is, for many people, still an impulse purchase. Impulse purchase. For many people, they still want to pick up groceries as part of a single shop. You know, these habits are changing, but the majority of them lie in a, in a certain area. That makes sense. Seeing the sale to Unilever, I guess, makes perfect sense. Um, applying what you just said and using their distribution network across Europe and so on without going into detail, obviously. And so talk me through how the organization changed. So you started as a tech and data company. The culture was all about data and, and customer centricity. And then over time, you moved towards a retail organization that must have been a, a huge pivot internally. Correct. And, you know, we, we had one bit of the business that was either flat or declining, depending on, you know, kind of, you know, how you wanted to run the economics or what sort of year you were having. And you had another one which was growing very quickly. And I, I think we became something very different, which was a multi-channel player, which means that people in supply chain and people in finance need to build a set of systems which can solve multiple different business models in multiple different countries. And you have to have a broad church in terms of the different commercial skills. They're just so different selling to a retailer than you know, managing a, an, on, an online business. How do you bring them all, all those different skills in and, and, and get them organized? The truth is it's very complicated being an international business, being a business which sells through lots of different channels uh, and with a lot of change going on underneath the surface. Can we talk about the leadership team for a moment and what you learned about running high-performance leadership teams and building them over time? Do you have any principles um, or what, what did you learn about leadership teams? Yeah, I, I, what I certainly learned is I wasn't as good as it <laughs> as maybe I thought I think you're I being was. humble. No, no, no. I, th no, I think the, as I, you know, kind of back to when Gray's had its shock and you know the formula for growth no longer worked and a new way forward had to be discovered i think i realized how much better i was going to have to be at the leadership team the organization managing that complexity i, I think what i learned a lot about was spending the time with the management team you know discussing these things 
creating clarity on complex issues, creating alignment on complex issues, you know, and then letting people go and do their complex jobs, you know, because they, they had a lot to do. A supply chain which now had to solve, serve multiple customers and channels in multiple countries. You know, a finance team which had to know far more accounting standards and had to kind of collect money from retailers and all these new things had to, had to be added. So those are huge functional challenges. But when you think about the team itself, what kind of creates a positive environment for the team to strive? Yeah, I, I think we, we sat down and we had a kind of a real kind of crunch moment as a team. And there, were, there was two parts of it. I think who wanted to be on the team and who didn't want to be on the team. You know, no blame attached, but it isn't for everybody. And some people decided they didn't want to be on the management team anymore. They saw it as very stressful and difficult and uncertain. You know, they'd had a peek at the world of being an exec and they decided that they preferred not being one. So there was a lot of change in the management team. Some of it kind of was led by me, but also quite a bit of it was, I think, people deciding whether they wanted to be an exec or not once they realized what it was going to entail. I think the second bit is we wrote down a set of principles as a team that we were going to hold to. And for at least five years, these remained sort of very, very relevant in terms of how we were going to operate. Can you share one or two examples? I can certainly give you a few. So some of them were around alignment. So there was one that, you know, in the room, you know, we're going to be engaged. We're going to be in the conversation we don't like something, we're going to say it. If somebody, you know, disagrees with you and says it in slightly the wrong way, don't take it personally. You know, this kind of, how do we, how do we have the tough debates in the room? But when we leave the room, we're going to be perfectly aligned. We know what we're going to say. We're not going to disagree with each other. Um, so that was an example of one of the things we sat down and decided on together, um, which we, I think is one of five, one of five we came up with. If you step back from from the grace story and the innocence story and you imagine doing this journey again and you again join a company with maybe 20, 30 people, what are the three things you would do differently building the next company after grace and innocent? There's a couple of fundamentals which I feel even more strongly are true having been, you know, kind of grace and innocent and that is in a consumer goods company, the quality of the product your reputation with consumers, how a brand and branding can help you build that reputation with current and future consumers over time. At both companies, for instance, we had an in-house design team. I love that model in terms of agility, big digital business, owning the brand. So I think that would be something which is you know, absolutely true. Things which I don't feel I got right at Gray's um, I, I think there's a huge thing about the staging and the timing of different new ventures. So I'd rather start earlier um, on a low bubble on far more sort of big uh, new ventures to give yourself the time to explore them or to recognize that your year one numbers rarely work and you probably need to fiddle with the model. You know, it, it was great to pivot into retail at Steam, but you know, really in hindsight, should have had, have got their wheels rolling on that many years earlier. 
And how do you kind of align that thinking with, I guess, the necessity to rigorously focus um, as a scale-up given resources are limited? Yeah, I'm, I'm definitely a big believer of the model that putting kind of entrepreneurial ventures through the core, one distracts, but also they don't tend to work. So I, I completely agree with you. I think giving organizations, organizations focus is key to execution and success. And doing less rather than more is often the answer. Um, so I think you have to come up with a way of sort of pioneering these things on the side, outside of the core, so they distract as few people as possible. And I think what you find is as organizations grow, you know, you have these real star entrepreneurs who become increasingly disaffected because they're not organization people. You know, they, they want to go and pioneer things. They don't survive as well in complex organizations which have all sorts of things like matrices you know kind of creeping in so kind of how do you recognize those people pull them out and excite them about new missions and let them go off and go off and play give them the time to fail give them your support would be my theory and given the, the huge complexity of the journey you've been on, how did you find the time to develop as a CEO? Yeah, I, I, I mean, as, as I said, I, I learned a lot about how I had to improve as the tide went out and kind of things got difficult. The biggest one by far was mentors, spending time with other CEOs, talking about some of the questions which you've raised, especially around, you know, kind of management teams which are working versus not working. That was game changing for me. Any, any more tips for other CEOs or people on the leadership journey? I think some of the big ones would be um, when your organization gets to a certain size, you need different types of executive skills. Um, and how you you know manage people off the team and onto the team um, is, is something which can be very difficult, but is something very necessary. At the same time, bringing in execs with lots of experience frequently fails. So how how do you stop that happening, or how do you recognise if you have made the wrong hire? You know, I, I think that's a big one as well. It, it is hard to pull an organisation in the right direction on your own. You need people with the right skills. We found this extraordinary guy. He used to be the global supply chain direction for Dyson. And he said he just, you know, he just wanted to be in a smaller business where he was closer to things. But, you know, he put in place so much stuff for us, which, you know, when, when, when the trouble really started, you know, it was his systems and his flexibility and his excellent supply chain, which could cope with sort of this supply chain, which stretched kind of all around the world in terms of ingredients and all across the US, all the different routes our products were taking to market and still meant the person who was buying the cashews knew how many cashews to buy in the next six months. So kind of, you know, those sort of individuals, if you can find them, can radically change your business, pull you in the right direction and kind of professionalize you. It's a powerful point. And then on a more personal level, you and your wife raised young kids, you know, whilst having full on jobs, how are you finding the juggle and how do you actually unwind? I don't think I've worked out the answer to that. Um, I think part of my problem is I've always been very engaged by my job. I'm very energized by it. 
I enjoy the challenge at the same time as the challenge taking a toll. But I, I think you've got to you've got to create the space. Um, and you know there is this issue which comes, especially if you've got a long fa- young family, which is a real squeeze between the world of work and the world of home. And kind of, I think you've got to come up with systems on how to manage that. For instance, always booking your holidays at the start of the year and, and sticking to them more. Always, you know, making a decision on, do you work in the evenings or are you going to work at the weekends and sticking to it? Yeah, definitely not not easy topics. Um, and Anthony, what's next? You obviously have such an incredible vantage point. What do you want to do next? It's great to have scaled greys, but also what it's taught me is I really love the start. I love the product. I love the brand. I love the R and D. You know, I love you know the world of startups and uh and and scale-ups and i i want to go back and do it again um so i'm going to have a think about what that might look like <laughs>